The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Keeper Cut Podcast, a proud member of the Pitcherless Podcast Network, and welcome to the off-season. It is time for us to start thinking about all that Keeper League stuff, all the things that are coming up in the future. The, I guess it's not really the off-season, it's the post-season, but you know, for fantasy, it's the off-season, unless you're, unless you're playing some crazy post-season fantasy league. You playing any of those? No, I've done that with football before, but never with baseball. Adonu does have this like six picks thing. You go check it out. It's like a daily fantasy thing. I actually got to make my picks for today. It'll be weird today with only one game, but it's basically a free daily fantasy. There's there's no prizes or anything. It's just bragging rights, but it's a fun little game. It's worth checking out. So that's what I've been doing. But meanwhile, just a reminder that you can subscribe to the show because we are going to be we're going to be here all off season. Every couple of weeks, we'll be here. We've got a lot of content. I think in some ways, the off-season is our on-season. We've got so much we got to cover as people think about arbitration, not our new, off-season trades in their keeper leagues, keeper decisions when that comes around, draft stuff, all that. There's, there's so much going on. So we're going to be, we'll be busy. We want to make sure we put out the best content for you. So you should also reach out to us and let us know what you want. You can do that by hitting us up on Twitter at Keep or Cut. You can also hit either of us up at Pete B Baseball at Chad Young. Happy to hear from you and figure out what we should be doing this offseason to make this show as useful as possible. And we're going to start off the offseason with a look at guys who's, we'll say that their 2022 was in some regard underwhelming. These are all players who finished outside the top 200 on the player radar. I used Rasball. Did you use the Rasball player rater? I was when we did our research. We may have used different player raters. I so I used ESPN. I don't think the final results were too different, but I know that people have issues, particularly with the ESPN one. I'm not entirely sure what the difference is. I think somebody at Pitcherless came out with an article about the player raters a couple of years ago. I'll I'll look that up. Yeah. I think I'll I'll be honest. I don't love the player raters. I think they are useful in general for just getting a sense of where someone's value is, right? Like if somebody is at like number 47 on the player Raider, that doesn't mean they were the 47th most valuable fantasy player to me. What it means to me though, is like they were clearly a top 100 guy. They were, they might've been as high as 25. They might've been as low as 75, but like they're somewhere in there and it gives you a, a rough sense of where they've been. And so for our purposes today, I think it works. And our our purpose today is, like I said, we're going to start with guys who are outside the top 200 on the player Raider. 
whatever player rater we looked at, we use different ones, but that's okay, who we think have a shot to make a leap next year. And we, we sort of started this off with this like, who could be go from outside the top 200 to like a top 30, like a first couple rounds type value. It turns out, Pete, that's really hard. There are not a lot of those guys. Yeah, no question. Like, I mean, we, we start out with like filters, right? Like we're going to try to avoid rookies and guys who are hurt because it's like obvious that they could make a jump. But if you filter those out completely, then it gets to a point where, well, first of all, nobody is going to jump to a first or second round pick. It's highly unlikely like that. Jose Batista, you remember when Jose Batista made that leap from like a utility yeah. player to literally the premier like that almost never happens. And right. I certainly I'm not going to try to predict that to happen. But yeah, and just because I mentioned it, the player Raider piece, it was written by Alexander Chase back in 2020 about what's wrong with the ESPN player Raider. Now, I haven't I haven't read the piece in years, so we don't need to <laughs> break that down. But yeah, so you were using Raswell. I was using ESPN. Bottom line, it's guys who we think can jump. Yeah. And I was looking like I looked at the top, you know, 25 ish guys on this year's player Raider. And, you know, when we say it's unlikely someone's going to come from the top 200 and join that group. That group this year, I'll just rattle off the names. You can tell me if you think anyone here might have been outside the top 200 or even close to it last year. But Aaron Judge, Paul Goldschmidt, Freddie Freeman, Pete Alonso, Trey Turner, Jose Ramirez, Manny Machado, Mookie Betts, Dansby Swanson, Francisco Lindor, Jordan Alvarez, Kyle Tucker, Shohei Otani, Adelis Garcia, Justin Verlander, Marcus Simeon, Bo Bichette, Jose Altuve, Austin Riley, Kyle Schwarber, Julio Rodriguez, Vlad Guerrero Jr., Randy Rosarena, Nolan Arenado, Sandy Alcantara. Those are the top 25 names. Now, there are a couple names in there that were not drafted expecting that kind of value for sure. But Julio Rodriguez, you know, obviously outside the top 200 last year since he did nothing, but he was a rookie this year. Justin Verlander didn't pitch last year due to injury. Dansby Swanson probably made the largest jump, but I don't think he was outside the top 200 last year. He shouldn't have been anyways. So I don't really think, uh, and the other name there is maybe Nolan Arenado who had a down year last year. But again, I don't think he was outside the top 200 or even close to being outside the top 200 last year. So I just, it, it is really hard to make that kind of a leap. Like Pete said, we wanted to eliminate guys like Verlander who are out because who are out of the top 200 because of injury and only because of injury. There are some guys on here who got hurt at some point, but what we tried to do is set a filter of like the injury isn't why they're outside the top 200 this year. We tried to eliminate rookies and by rookies, I, I interpreted that as they will be rookies or rookie eligible next year. And again, it's a playing time thing, right? Like, is it bold to predict that Francisco Alvarez will be a top, you know, the number one overall catcher and end up as a top 30 value? Yes, it is. But he wasn't outside the top 200 because he didn't perform this year. He's outside the top 200 because he never had a shot. Again, there are guys who are young on here who maybe didn't get a full season of playing time this year, but whose performance is what kept them outside the top 200. So we also, I think, like I said, we started with this idea of like guys who could jump into the top 30, but that proved really hard. And so what we we have here is a mix of, I think, two different things. One is guys who, and most of these guys, I think, fall into this. Most of these guys fall into like, do I think they're going to fall into the top 30? No. But sort of bold prediction style, there is a there's a path. And it's a it's not a crazy path. It's not a like, you know, if John Birdie develops 30 home run power, he could be a first round value. And it's like, yeah, okay, sure, he could, but that's not going to happen. These are all 
these are all guys where the, the path is legitimate, I think. And then there's a couple of guys on here as well who are probably the path to the first round is probably not realistic, but regaining value to the point that this year, like to the point that this year drives down their value so much that they become good values next year. Like there's a, there's some guys who fit into that bucket as well. Yeah, for sure. So why don't we get started and Pete, I'm going to, turn it over to you to go first. And I think the guy on your list who I, I think is sort of interesting because I do think there is a a second round value season in this guy, potentially. That's DJ LeMayhew. So talk to me a little bit about DJ. Yeah, I think our listeners are dedicated listeners. Like those of those of you that have been with us since the early days are probably tired of hearing me talk about DJ LeMayhew because he was one of my biggest targets going into last year and he was one of my biggest targets going into this year. And he's he's kind of disappointed. But LeMahieu was looking like he was going back to that like elite performance level that we saw from him in 2019 and in 2020. Obviously, like maybe I shouldn't say obviously, but I don't think we're going to see a return to the power that we saw that 26 home runs back in 2019. That, that definitely feels like an outlier season, especially when you consider his early years were with Colorado. And we didn't even see that there, but we saw it in Yankee Stadium. At the same time, like LeMahieu you were pretty pleased with him up until his injury. So from the beginning of the season up until August 13th, and I'll, I'll explain why I chose that date in just a second, but from day one to August 13th, 12 home runs and 457 plate appearances, which we'll take, especially with LeMahieu, who's typically like a volume guy, pace that out to about 600 plate appearances. I don't know. Chad could do the math, but we're, we're getting close to 20 homers, which we'd gladly take. He had 134 WRC plus, which we'll definitely take. And a 42.9% hard hit percentage, which is significant for LeMayu because he's never really profiled as a guy who's a, who hits the ball all that hard. On August 14th, he missed a game against the Red Sox. And it, it, it was rumored that he had he was having toe soreness. He had some kind of issue there that later he needed an MRI for. And as especially Yankee fans know, he ended up missing a ton of time with um, down the stretch. It involved a prolonged IL stint. I don't know if he underwent surgery or not. I can't remember. But he missed a ton of time. He was on and off the field. When he played from August 14th to the end of the season with this toe injury, he had zero homers in 78 plate appearances. He had a negative 13 WRC plus. I had to look at that like 15 times to make sure my brain or my eyes weren't messing with me. There's a negative 13 WRC plus, a 32.1% hard hit percentage. So a precipitous drop in how hard he was hitting the ball. His average exit velocity dropped over a mile an hour. And obviously that coincided with the dip in his barrel rate. Which is, he's not going to post an elite barrel rate anyway because of his average launch angle, but whatever. I think going into next year, assuming, like, like follow the Aaron Judge situation, because I think that's important for LeMahieu in terms of his volume. You know, having Judge hit behind him or right in front of him is going to be super helpful. I think most of this year it was behind him. But if Judge comes back or if the Yankees adequately replace Judge, and if the toe injury, it seems like he's moved past that, then his elite plate discipline is still there. And and I think he's a guy who profiles as someone who could age pretty well, spreads the ball around, plays in a good stadium, plays in a good lineup. Again, the elite plate discipline obviously being the most important part of that. So I, I think there's a good chance that people look at him going into drafts and say, oh, come on, he's he's older now and he's had two down seasons and he was beat up last year and, 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 and just begin to pile on him. So if LeMahieu's ADP is somewhere around 200, maybe even after 150, you know, you're getting someone who's super versatile, will typically bat at the top of the order, at least in an advantageous spot because of his versatility. 
And I, I think he could be 100 runs, bat 300 again. Like, why not? Batting average isn't really all that sticky year to year. And he's a guy who puts the ball in play enough to hit for that kind of average. He's done it multiple times in the past. I don't know. I, I like LeMahieu going into next year. He was 210 on the player Raider. Not going to really contribute in steals. Probably not too much in RBI, but I think he would be. I think he will be a valuable player based on where he goes next year. Yeah, and I think that some of the things working in his favor, he plays, at least this year, his defense is rated out really well, really the last couple years. And he was an excellent, excellent defender early in his career. He sort of went through a period, 2020, 2021, where like outs above average dipped for him. But this year, 96th percentile outs above average. Even that dip last year was 62nd percent. He was down in the 7th percent in 2020, but that was a shortened season. And then you go back to 2019, 2018, like again, 95th, 98th percent. So he plays really good defense. I think that the Yankees view him as a an elite or near elite defender, which means he'll stay on the field, whatever position they need him at, he'll he'll be out there. That keeps him in the lineup, which to your point about needing volume really matters. He struggled with his batting average. I mean, relatively speaking, the last couple of years, right? 268 last year, 261 this year from a five by five perspective, like that's it's not good enough because he just doesn't do enough of the other stuff. But 2019, 2020 in New York, he hit 327, 364. Like he is more than capable of putting up a, you know, 310, 315, 320 type season, even without the benefit of cores. And if he does that, he maintains his home run pace. That that home run pace paced out to like 16, 17-ish over a full season. It depends sort of how many plate appearances he gets. The thing that's missing, and I think the thing that would stop me from seeing him as like a could leap back into the first couple rounds type thing is he hasn't broken double digits in steals since 2016, and he hasn't been particularly effective. The last two years, he has eight stolen bases, but has been caught five times, and the Yankees are too smart an organization to encourage him to run more when he's being caught that often. And so when I look at that, it's like, eh, I don't know. I, I have a, like, without 20 home runs and without 20 stolen bases, I don't think he, you know, his average just isn't going to carry him all the way back into those top couple rounds. It's just, it's just not going to happen for him. But there are some names. I mean, if you look at like maybe Luis Arise, although he didn't really hit for as much power as I would expect from LeMayhew. Where did Arise end up? Arise ended up 113th. Jeff McNeil was 109th on the Rasball player Raider. Like those are the types of players who I could see him. You know, Ty France. Ty France seems like a weird comp in some ways for LeMahieu, but uh, I think some similarities there where like you you look for a high average, you you expect home runs, but not a ton of home runs. He's not going to steal a ton of bases for you. Ty France was 105th. Like you start to get into that group and see a path to LeMahieu being better than those guys were this year from a fantasy perspective and jumping inside the top 100 for sure. And so that's your point of like, if you can trade for him in the offseason, if you can draft him, and the price to trade for him or draft him is something around 150th in value, I think they, I, I certainly buy him beating that. Not sure I believe he can get all the way into the top two rounds types, but no chance. I could see it. Yeah. The other thing about the real quick on the player Raider chat is, and you hit it there with the speed with DJ LeMahieu. If we're measuring it just by the player Raider, he really doesn't have any chance at all, at least on ESPN's player Raider of jumping into that top 
25 or, or wherever we want to put the the benchmark there because of the lack of speed that like Adelise Garcia was higher on the player radar than uh, than Jordan Alvarez this year on ESPN and it's it's just because he stole bases and and that's not to downplay Adelise Garcia he had a monster season yeah but like if you steal eight bases versus zero on the player radar that's like the difference between Willie Mays and Mark Bellhorn like it it really puts a lot of emphasis on those stolen bases yeah and speaking of stolen bases, I think the guy I want to talk about is a guy who I think the stolen bases are a big part of why I think he could jump all the way into that group. Again, this is sort of bold prediction style. I don't want to say like, yeah, take him in the second round because he'll be a good value there. That's that's not what I'm saying with this guy. But this is no surprise to people. It's sort of my, my version of LeMahieu. No surprise to anyone who's listened to the show regularly. No surprise to anyone, to anyone who knows me. Trent Grisham is a guy who I am still in on and Grisham on the Rasball player Raider this year. Was what a surprise. Yeah, shocking. <laughs> he was 332nd on the player Raider this year, well outside the top 200. And he did miss some time with injury, but he got 524 plate appearances and he was, I mean, he was bad. He had a 184 average. Like that is, that's ugly. He had an 83 WRC plus. However, there was a chunk of time and it's not a small chunk of time. From the end of May, May 31st, through September 9th. And I picked September 9th as my cutoff because he missed the next four days. Didn't play the 10th, 11th, or or next three days. Didn't play the 10th, 11th, or 12th. And then after that was when, what's his name, Azakar came up. And all of a sudden, Grisham was like pinch hitting sometimes, not playing every day. Like his role changed. But from late May until April 9th, in 310 plate appearances. So we're talking 60% of his season. This isn't like some tiny sample. It's not a big sample, obviously, but it's it's a big chunk of his year. He had 15 home runs, six stolen bases. He still only had a 208 average because he still only had a 235 BAPIP, but he had a 110 WRC+. He was a solidly above average hitter with good fantasy numbers, right? I mean, it, half a season, if I, if I just double his home runs, runs, RBIs, and stolen bases over that stretch. He would have had a 30 home run, 90 run, 72 RBI, 12 stolen base season in 610 plate appearances. Now, he didn't do that, right? He didn't continue that. But that that capability is still there. And he, he has a couple of other things that I think could drive up his production next year. One is... His BAPIP, as I mentioned, during even during that stretch, it was only 235. It was only 231 for the season. That BAPIP should go up quite a bit. So I, I guess I'm saying that is part of the reason his BAPIP is down. And it's way down. Like his career BAPIP is 274. It had never been below 286 before the 231 this year. But part of the reason for that is he did post a career high in fly ball rate, just barely 43.3% over the 43.2% he had in 2019. And that will drive down your BAPIP. He also posted a career low in line drive rate at 13.5%. He had never been below 18.9% in his career. The fact that his ground ball and fly ball rates went up while his line drive rate went down suggests, and and as part of that, his launch angle was 15.1 this year. It was up, but 13.8 13.8 for his career, his other three years, 15.7, 13.5, 12.3. It's been sort of bouncing around. So actually the increase in, in launch angle from last year at 12.3 to 15.1 this year was a good thing. 
The concern is, and, and part of the reason for the ineffectiveness this year is that low line drive rate suggests a lot of extreme outcomes. We talked last week on our show, I talked about the article that Mikey Ahedo wrote over at Baseball Prospectus about Jesse Winker. And one of the things he talked about in that article is the standard deviation of launch angle, basically, right? So like, how often are you hitting it in a, in a good, consistent area versus how often are you going way too high or way too low? And Grisham was struggling with that. Too many pop-ups, too many grounders, too, like he was just up high and low and it averaged out to something reasonable from a launch angle perspective, but you can see in his line drive rate, he just wasn't he wasn't hitting the ball on a line the way you want him to. I think that goes back up next year. I think it brings his bat back up. I think that that brings, therefore, his average back up. I think that his ability to draw walks, he's still at a 10.9% walk rate this year. And his ability to play defense. So, you know, we talked about LeMahieu staying on the field because of his defense. Trent Grisham this year was a 2.1 win player in 152 games, 524 plate appearances. Like that's, you know, a, a, a an average regular is about a two win player over a full season of, you know, 600-ish plate appearances. He was better than that. He was better than an average player, which gives him a real nice shot to stay on the field. Now, I don't know what the Padres are going to do this offseason. They seem to really like Azucar. And I know a lot of people around the Padres have been fans, I'm saying, not necessarily you know, front office, anything like that. I have no idea what they're thinking. But the fact that they started benching Grisham more down the stretch, I sort of wonder if he gets traded. The team is, uh, the team is not hesitant to make trades, we'll say. <laughs> and so there's a chance he gets moved. But wherever he goes, he should be a starting center fielder. He is a good enough player to be a major league starting center fielder. He should get regular plate appearances. And if the BAPIP comes back up and he can continue to hit home runs and steal bases like he's capable of, there is actually a path to like a 30-20 season for him. Now, he's never stolen anything close to 20 bases. He's only stolen 13 at the max in 2021. But he's stolen 31 bases in seven, and it's been only caught seven times in his major league career. So he steals at a very high success rate and now pitchers won't be able to hold him on as well. And now the bases will be bigger, which will make it a little easier to get in there. And I think, I think like a 30, 20 season is, I'm not going to say it's likely. Like I said, I wouldn't spend a first round pick or second round pick on this guy, but it's not a, like out of the realm of possibility for him, given what he's capable of doing and given what he did over the, the chunk, the middle 50% of this season, right? He was on a, a 30, 12 pace for more than half of this season. And so that's the optimistic case for Trent Grisham. That's it. Keep walking and keep getting on base. Slightly increase your hard hit and barrels with the line drive rate coming up because I think it I think it will. Play great defense, you earn a full season of 650 plate appearances. Run more with the new rules helping you feel confident running more. And you know, the guy I see is like Randy Rosarena was in that top 30 group and he had a 2032 season. Now I think Grisham is more likely to be 3020 than 2030. But similar averages, I think that path is there. Yeah, I like it. I mean, since the last time we spoke about Grisham, I obviously his season has been much stronger despite, you know, like you said he's starting to lose a little bit of play time and I think he put this in the notes but it hasn't been mentioned and it, it's obviously anecdotal, but the fact that 
over the last two days, this dude has hit a home run off Max Scherzer and a home run off Jacob DeGrom. It's hard to ignore that, you know, especially the DeGrom I one. Because... I completely ignored it and forgot to mention it. You're right. <laughs> it was in my notes. because I was like, he is just hammering the ball right now. And somehow it was like, that just, that just slipped my mind. <laughs> the one off DeGrom was like, I, I want to say it was opposite field. It was like left center. And that was a good pitch. Like even the announcers were like, DeGrom hit his spot. DeGrom couldn't believe that Grisham hit that out. It's super anecdotal. It's one batted ball, but like when the best pitcher in the game is on his game and Trent Grisham takes him the other way, like I'm going to take note of that. And like, I think he's a type of player people are going to feel kind of fatigued on and and they're going to forget that he's just entering his age 26 season. And he's got a lot of those skills that we want to see. He's athletic. His gloves should keep him in the lineup, assuming he does get traded. And I like that idea. AJ Preller is not hesitant to make moves. Like you said, and the plate discipline, like those are skills that you you want to see in young players. Now, I do worry that the K rate took a jump. I, I worry that the chase rate went up and the contact rate went down. But when you consider his age and the, the up and down nature of the season that he had, I think that's pretty forgivable. forgivable. And the final thing on Grisham is like, he's going to be so cheap. Like you had to pay a little bit to get him this year because, you know, the upside and the hype, it was still there from the 2020 season. But this year, after two down seasons, hitting under 200 wire to playtime, he's going to be essentially free. And especially in shallower leagues, I want to use those last round picks on real dart throws. And Grisham does have that kind of upside that you were talking about, like that Randy Arozarena-esque upside, maybe flip the homers and steals. But again, kind of a similar player. If he does get traded to a team that needs a center fielder, and, and there are some good teams that need center fielders, good ballparks that need center fielders, then I don't see why not. I, I like that pick. Yeah. I'll also note on those home runs, you talked about the DeGrom one. The other day after Grisham homered off of Scherzer, Eno Saris tweeted out, Trent Grisham, not good high in the zone. He just tomahawked that one from Scherzer up high in the zone. Good sign for him. Now, again, anecdotal, it is one swing against a good pitcher. But, you know, showing signs of being able to maybe fix an issue that's been an issue, a problem for him for a while is is, it's a positive development. We'll say that. So let's jump to the next name on your list, Pete. And this is a guy who you and I both like. We've talked about him a lot. Another guy who's come up on the show before. He also is just seems like a good dude, which is another reason to like him. But Trey Mancini finished 281 on the ESPN player Raider. He finished, let's pull up. He was 226 on the Rasball player Raider. So Rasball a little higher on him, but outside the top 200 in either case. And you, you see a path to more. Yeah. So like to go back to where this conversation originated from, I want to be clear that like, I, I don't think Mantini is going to make a jump into the top 25 in the player Raider, right? Like, I mean, he'd need to have a career season and be really lucky for that to happen. But uh, my picks for this episode are really not sexy, like DJ LeMahieu and now Trey Mancini. But I still think there's a huge jump that he could make in the player Raider. Now, when Chad and I were talking before the show started, he reminded me that Mancini is not necessarily guaranteed to be an Astro next year. If anything, it's, it might be a little bit more likely, like 51% versus 49% that he's not an Astro because there's a mutual $10 million buy-in for next year, which like, if you're the Astros, I think you say yes to that. If you're Mancini, you might take a chance on the open market. I think if, if his goal was to play for one year, I think he could get like a one-year $15 million, one-year $16 million offer, heck, from a team like the Red Sox. Yeah, he might. I think he's a, this is an interesting one because I feel like those mutual options are always like they never get picked up. Mutual options are basically like, yeah. if you're really good, then we'll pick up the our side of it and give you your buyout. And if you're not really good, then we'll decline it. You won't get your buyout. And that's that. 
But this one is like, it's in this weird spot where, you know, do I think he could get like a two or three year deal that that's certainly more dollars total than 10 million? Yeah, for sure. And maybe he wants that. And like, I, I don't know. You know, I don't know Trey Mancini to know what he's going to value, but he certainly seems like a guy who could benefit from a pillow contract, given how well he was performing the first half of this year. He fell on some hard times in the second half. He has an opportunity to like for him to go somewhere where he could put up a full season without getting traded, without getting benched, without getting cancer, like without like all these things that have happened to him over the last few years and, and rebuild his value makes a ton of sense. And you said sort of before the show, like if he's going to take a pillow contract, like, yeah, maybe he'd get 15 million from someone else instead of the 10 million from the Astros. But like, if the Astros are committed to using him, why would he want to go somewhere else? Like why, like what a great park to be in, what a great lineup to be in to try to rebuild your value. So it'll be interesting. This is one of those rare cases where I actually can see both sides being like, yeah, you know what? This makes sense. Yeah. And I I mean, that's ultimately it right there, right? Is if he does come back to the Astros, Yuli Gurriel is not only an unrestricted free agent, he's going to be 39 years old. And I'm sorry, he's not that good anymore, right? He had that magical season a couple of years ago where he tore the cover off the ball and hasn't really been there since. So if Mancini's guaranteed, like, hey, man, you're going to be our first baseman. We believe in you, whatever. I'm kind of excited by that. I could understand people saying like, well, hold on a second. Look at his numbers after the trade. Like, sure, eight homers and 173 plate appearances is great, right? I mean, we'll take that from Mancini because he was on a much worse pace at Camden Yards, which is now, you know, a death trap for hitters, but 198 BABIP and 88 WRC plus. I think part of that was him. Maybe just like you just got traded to a contender. You're trying to live up to that. It was spotty play time. And I think he like tried to like, he, he read into the narrative that we all did, right? Like this is the perfect place for Trey Mancini. So he went from somebody who was already pulling the ball enough and already hitting enough fly balls that like, just keep doing that. You're going to be good. I wonder if he he really tried to lean into that even more because the dip in numbers once he was an Astro coincided with an increase in pull percentage, which was already above above league average and an increase in fly ball percentage, which again was already above league average. So was he just like completely selling out for the park? I, I don't know. The BABIP is kind of inexplicable. It, it dropped all the way down to beneath 200 and it was unsustainably at 326 in Camden, even though maybe that is a park that would warrant some higher BABIP. So it is kind of a weird case in in Houston, but I'd be willing to definitely bet on that at least for one more season to see what he could do. Full season, guaranteed playtime, great lineup, and a ballpark that should be really good to him. I could see an increase there. And he's another guy who like, he won't be free if he is the, if he's the everyday first baseman for the Astros, he's probably going to be in the top 200 picks. But I could still see him providing more value than that pretty easily were he to be given that spot. Yeah, I think that's true. I I think there's an interesting question with him of like, he has now gone through a sort of midseason fade multiple years in a row. And there always seems to be a reason for it, right? He had that recurrence scare in 2021. He got traded this year. Like, But is he a guy who you would, you know, try to trade in July, draft him? run that first half of the season. And then, I mean, I think it depends. It always depends on what value you can get. But like, do you think he just runs out of steam? Uh, so uh, if he was performing at a high level, I don't think I would. Like, I I, I think I'd believe in, in the analysis and being like, nope, it was, we totally understand two years ago, got the inconsistent playing time and and kind of a weird situation with Yuli, Yuli Gurriel there in Houston. And like now, if he just has the job and he's tearing it up, especially in Houston, yeah, I'm not trading him anywhere if he goes back to baltimore 
and has a good couple of first months that I think is unsustainable, I'll have no problem selling high. He's not a player that I'm like going to, you know, handcuffed to my roster. But uh, if he's performing well in Houston, I think he could do it for a whole year. Yeah, that makes sense. And actually looking back, 2019, he didn't play in 2020, but 2019, he actually was better in the second half than the first. It really is just the last two years that he's had this second half swoon. It doesn't seem, I mean, I guess two years is kind of a pattern, but I don't think, I don't think that's a real pattern. So yeah, he's got excuses for both years. Yeah. Let's take a quick break. And we come back, we got few more players to discuss who we think can make this kind of leap. Hey, Alex Fast here, and thanks for listening to this podcast on the Pitcher List Podcast Network. If you're a fan, consider supporting all of us by getting a PL Plus subscription, where you're going to get an ad-free website and get access to our Discord, where you can talk to all of our podcast hosts and staff. Plus, you can hang out with our incredible Pitcher List community. It's basically a baseball sanctuary year-round for as low as $8 a month. You can sign up at PitcherList.com backslash plus, and you're going to get your first month free with promo code podcast also don't forget to check out everything else we do as well from youtube videos live streams newsletters off-season articles tiktoks breakdowns over 15 baseball podcasts on our network we can't stop talking about baseball even during the off-season so sign up for pl plus today at pitcherlist.com backslash plus and use promo code podcast to get your first month free all right thanks for listening let's get back to the show all right, welcome back. Going through a couple of Pete's names, one of my names. I'm going to jump into another of mine. And this is a guy who, I'll be honest, I think he's sort of borderline for whether he qualifies for this. I'll talk about why in a second. But he is a guy who I also could see a clear path to a top 25, top 30 type season. And that is Nick Lodolo. And the reason I say he's borderline to qualify for this is is he threw 103.1 innings this year. Now, I don't think those innings were quite good enough. They certainly wouldn't have been top 50. Whether or not they were good enough if he had thrown them through a full season, if he had been top 200, he probably would have been. So that's why I say he's probably maybe doesn't qualify here. But he, as it happens, he was 287. Injury and being a rookie and sort of innings management, lots of other things impacted that. But I'm going to talk about him anyways because... Pete and I run the show and we can do whatever we want. So he did lose some time, like I said, didn't perform at that elite level. But some things that stand out to me, one is that his walk rate was average-ish, right? He had a 8.8% walk rate in his 103.1 major league innings. That's fine. That's not bad. It's, It's a totally fine walk rate. But he has certainly flashed better than that in the minors, right? In, in AAA this year, he only made three starts, but it was 4.3%. In AAA last year, it was 7.1%. In AA, it was 2 point, or sorry, in AA in 2021, it was 5.2%, not 2.5%. But he he has the type of command that should lead him to having a better than average walk rate. He hasn't done that yet. I think he could. He has strikeout stuff. Struck out 29.7% of hitters this year, 11.41 strikeouts per nine. No, no concerns about that. Certainly a thing that he can lean on as a strength. Speaking of leaning on, he leans on his four seamer and a pitch that at Savant, it shows up as a curveball. Fangraphs, it shows up as a slider. I'll be honest. I don't know which one it is, um, but either way, he has an excellent breaker. He also uses a sinker and a change and a sinker's change aren't as good. Leaning on his 
those two pitches. He throws the other two, I think, about 10% of the time combined. He has an opportunity to refine and improve his pitch mix and find something more with the sinker and change. And maybe not, that may not mean using them a lot more, but making them just a little bit more effective, spot, like choosing his spots, not his spots like location, spots like when he throws them to make them a little bit more effective and make them and, and create a little bit more, I don't know, balance is the right word, a little bit more interplay in his pitch mix, we'll say. Like there's an opportunity for him to find some improvement without necessarily making those pitches better just by using them more effectively. He also this year struggled his second time through the lineup, but not his third. And I, I mentioned that now part of that is he his third time through the lineup was limited. He, he didn't get a ton of it. He threw 41 innings the first time through the lineup, 36.1 the second, 26 the third. That's actually not as limited as I thought. But still, 26 innings, small sample. My point in mentioning that is he doesn't seem to have the type of concerning things you look for in a profile to suggest that he's going to be stuck. Like, he's not Dylan Bundy, right? And it's like one of the things I know, I know Twins fans have been super frustrated this year because Baldelli has been pulling guys at like, you know, the fifth inning all the time. But there's a reason for that, and it's that some of those guys, and Bundy is sort of the prime example that comes to my mind, like he can't handle facing guys at third time. He's not good enough. Lodolo is not showing that kind of pattern, which means that he has the ability to build up to the type of depth and volume that you need to be a you know top 30 overall as a pitcher. Right? You, you can't reach. I mean, if you look at the guys who are in the top 30 as starting pitchers. First of all, there are very few of them, but the ones who are there are Justin Verlander, Sandy Alcantara. They, I think they're the only two in the top 25. I mean, Otani's there. I don't know how you count him, but those two are in the top 25. Let's see who else is near that group. Julio Urias is 28th. Alec Manoa is 30th. Shohei just as a pitcher is 32nd. But all of those guys, then you get to like Dylan Cease at 36, you Darvish at 37, Carlos Rodon at 38. Like, they're all guys who throw lots of innings, right? Otani doesn't throw a ton, but he doesn't throw a ton because he's in a six-man rotation. When he does throw, he goes deep into games. And as a result, he did throw, what did he throw, 160 innings this year, something like that? You go to Fangraphs. 160, yeah, 166. When you go to Fangraphs and look up Otani, it shows his batting first. So then you got to click the pitching button, get over to him. But getting back to Lodolo, my point with him is that he is capable of going the depth into games and throwing the innings that are needed to leap into that group. He has the strikeout stuff already that can play up to that group. I think he can bring down the walk rate, which will help bring down all the rates around it. And like, you know, what what would I project for him next year? I don't know. This year he had a 366 ERA, a 390 FIP, 3.49 XFIP, 3.29 Sierra. Like the logical projection for him is that he goes from 100 innings, 103.1 innings to 160 innings, let's say, with a still sort of mid threes, 3.6 ish ERA. If you told me he got closer to 180 innings with a, an ERA closer to three than to three and a half, I fully believe that. I fully believe that's in his range of outcomes. And the challenge for him from a fantasy perspective, and this, this is a, a format thing, is because I don't think he'll suffer the third time through the penalty, third attempt through the order penalty. I mean, he'll suffer it at some level because everyone does, but like, because I don't think that'll be a problem for him. 
I think he can rack up some quality starts next year. He is not going to rack up wins because I don't know what the Reds plan to do this offseason, but it ain't going to be enough. That team is bad, and it's going to be bad again. And he's not getting traded, so he's going to have to find a way to win games on that team. So he's not going to get a ton of wins. But if you're in a quality start league, or if you're in a league where, like, you know, auto new points, things like that, he he's going to be he's going to be solid. The big concern in auto new points leagues is I do think he's going to suffer some home run issues. I don't really know what to do about that for him. Now, I think they can get better next year. He had a 46% ground ball rate this year. He was never below 50% in the minors other than 11 innings in rookie ball in 2019. So I think that that ground ball rate could come up. And as that ground ball rate comes up, the home runs will go down. But he's still going to play half his games in Great American Ballpark. And it is not a pleasant place to pitch when it comes to giving up home runs. Now, oddly, he had more home run issues on the road than at home this year. So maybe that bodes well for the future. But I still think you're just, he's not going to be, I wouldn't count on being a positive in home runs per nine or in home runs allowed just because it's just too hard. But everything else, and in five by five leagues where you don't care if the runs come via home run or whatever, I don't think it'll be a problem. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm glad you brought up the home road stuff at the end there. I mean, as it pertains to home runs, and I've brought up a couple of times now, I'm still getting used to that category home runs per nine, right? In the new four by four, I absolutely blew that category this year in the listener league. I'm still, still learning the ropes here, but it, it, forget about the success in home run rate at, at oddly enough at home versus on the road for somebody that pitches a great American ballpark. He was actually just to kind of put this narrative, not to bed because it's such a small sample size, but to maybe make people feel a little bit easier drafting a pitcher that pitches a great American ballpark. He was dominant at home this year through 12 starts. He had a 2.85 ERA. The whip wasn't great, but it's not bad at 1.24, 88 strikeouts and 66 innings. Not that that really matters where you're pitching compared to on the road where the ERA was up over five. So assuming he can figure things out on the road and, and keep up even close to that much success at Great American Ballpark, there's obviously a lot of room for growth. You know, you brought up the ability to get quality starts. I think more and more leagues are shifting to quality starts away from wins anyway. If your league is not well, like Chad said, I wouldn't expect a lot of wins. The one area of concern I have for Lodolo is not something that he's really in charge of, but since he became a professional, the most innings he had pitched in the season was 44. So this year at 103.1, that's not a lot of innings, but that's he threw still... 10 in the minors too. So he was actually at 113.2 or something total. And we'll take that. I just like the growth from there. Like I, I wouldn't expect 180 inning jump at the same time. Like we're not really expecting 180 p- innings pitched anymore, almost from anybody aside from like those top 25 guys. And then that handful of vets that are just fun to own. And they give you, you know, the ERA around 3.75 and you're just happy to have them. But I guess that would be my my one thing with Lodolo, but I'm I'm with you. He was frankly one of the not just one of the best rookie pitchers, one of the best pitchers in the second half. Yeah. So if if people in your league fell asleep in the second half, and you know maybe it was a roto league and they were out of it and they missed the boat on Lodolo, like yeah, I'd go get him now because there's a lot of growth coming next season. Yeah, and looking at his his game log, you mentioned the second half thing. So his very first major league start was against Cleveland. He went four innings, gave up five runs, walked three, struck out four. Then he got a start at San Diego, gave up three runs over five innings. After those two starts, he had a 3.24 ERA, 3.59 FIP the rest of the way. Like he was really, really strong after two ugly starts to open the season. 
his walk rate, like, you know, I talked about his walk rate was higher than I expected, but like that Cleveland start drove it up quite a bit walking three. He, and then he walked five in his very last start, his road numbers, like that start against San Diego wasn't very good. He had a bad start at St. Louis where he gave up five runs over two innings. And he had a bad start at Philadelphia where he gave up four runs over five and a third. Other than that, his road starts weren't terrible and it's only 36 road innings total. So, you know, it's, uh, there's a lot of things in there that, that I think point in his favor. And the more I look at him, the more I feel like, yeah, he's going to be undervalued next year. So go get him. Let's jump to, we talked about the one pitcher on my list. You've got a pitcher on your list as well. And I'm going to be, I'm going to be real honest and upfront here, Pete. I, I don't see it with this guy, but I haven't actually looked at your notes yet. So I'm very curious to hear what you're going to say. Cause like Sean Manaya, who you have noted as being outside the top 400 on the ESPN player Raider. He was 438. He is 441 on the Rasball player Raider. So there, there's some alignment there that he was real bad. Uh, you're going to have to convince me. <laughs> see what you can do. <laughs> so again, this is like, it's almost like cheating because it's not hard to improve upon a player Raider placement of 438, right? Like, I mean, if he throws 150 innings next year, he's going to finish higher on 438. It's also like the cherry on top of me saying that my picks for this are really unsexy. With that said, you know, if you were somebody who was able to trade away Sean Manaya after, I don't know, I'm trying to pull up the splits right now, after his, so in April... He had a 193 average against. He was a strikeout rate around 25%. The walk rate wasn't great, but it wasn't terrible. I mean, he was he was kind of locked in early on in March and April. If you were able to trade him then, then like you're laughing all the way to the bank because things went seriously south after that. But Sean Manaya, crafty lefty, veteran. I expect him to bounce back from this terrible season. One thing I put in the notes is like, and you're not going to feel great about this because he's still going to have to face the Dodgers. Against the Dodgers this year, now for, for the whole season, let's start there, 4.96 ERA, 1.3 whip in 158 innings pitch. I'm sorry, he's better than that. Against the Dodgers, this was through 17.2 innings pitched. He had an ERA over 11 and a whip over 1.8. If you take out those starts, which again, is really hard to do because he's probably still going to be a Padre next year, which means he's still going to have to face the Dodgers. But against everyone else, it was a 4.10 ERA, a 1.23 whip, and 140 innings pitched, which like, I don't know, pace that out over another 15. That's kind of like what you should have expected from Sean Manaya. And in a good year, that could be an ERA under four with a reasonable whip and a decent amount of strikeouts. He's not a guy I really want to roster in a strikeouts per nine league. And oddly enough, his strikeout rate against the Dodgers was much higher than it was against everybody else. But I think he, here's my point. He's going to be free next year. He's going to be free. I think there's a lot of people like you that are just completely out. And unlike, uh, I, I guess the one I'll compare him to, Patrick Corbin, where it, when everything went wrong for Patrick Corbin, the numbers to me really backed it up. Like there was nothing good about him. And for two, three years in a row, people were like, Patrick Corbin's sleeper, Corbin's sleeper. No, he can't pitch anymore. Manaya, I don't feel the same way. I'm not ready to say all is done for Sean Manaya. He's, he's going to be entering his age 31 season. It's not like he's super old. He's shown success in the past. And again, I want to be clear on what I'm expecting. I'm not expecting Sean Mania to jump up to be a top 30, even top 50 starting pitcher. But I pl- maybe this is where I'm coming from, where I play in deep leagues. Like, he's going to be free 
And I think he's a guy who, if you draft him in the 27th round of your, you know, 15 team league, I think there's a decent chance that you end up rostering him all year and you pick his matchups. Well, you don't start him against the Dodgers. You don't start him at cores and you end up getting a lot of value out of that. And he's a player who really could improve on just a disastrous 2022 season. Yeah. And I think you made a, a good point. We said, you just don't play him at cores. Cause like that does seem like sort of the obvious solution here is like, Oh, he can't pitch at cores at all. And it's like, or not, of course, against the Dodgers. Like he was terrible against the Dodgers. It's like, yeah, just don't do that. Just don't start him against the Dodgers. Like that's this isn't this isn't rocket science. Like you can you can avoid that problem if you want to. And so I'm sort of curious, but I'm poking around and looking at guys who have similar ERAs to his non-Dodgers line in similar numbers of innings. That 140-ish, and like Noah Syndergaard has a 3.94 ERA and 134 innings. Frankie Montas went 144 innings and had a 4.05 ERA. And those guys are still sitting like outside the top 300, around the top 300. Thor was at 271. Montas was like 310-ish. Now I'm, I've lost him on my list. Hold on, 303. So Montas was somebody that I wanted to pick for this, but I I felt like that was almost too much cheating. We're like the injury until the trade deadline. He was a top 30 pitcher. He was a top like 20 pitcher. No, I, yeah. And the Yankees ruined him. They, they seem to have. It's true. And I I worry about him because I'm not sure. I don't know. I hate the idea of him being still in Yankee stadium, but I guess that's where he's going to be. But my, my point in bringing him up here. Carlos Carrasco, by the way, by the way, another guy with sort of similar ish numbers. He went, he had a 3.97 ERA in 152 innings. His Rasball player rater is 173. The point being that, like, I see a path for Manaya, even if he like Manaya not improving, but just not using him against the Dodgers, is probably a somewhere between. 200 and 250 on the player radar, just the non-Dodger numbers this year. And so that already is a big improvement from where he was. And I think, so I'll say this, I think you've convinced me he's probably a value at drafts. I don't think his he's likely to jump back into a sort of standard shallow league starting pitcher guy. I do think that in auto new leagues, in other deep formats, there is a there is a path to him having sort of back of the rotation type value that he lacked this year. And I had him like in our Fangraph staff league, League 13 that, that you and I are both in. Niv and I had him on our roster. We picked him up last September. He got cut and we picked him up cheap and we rode him the beginning of this year and we waited too long and by August ended up just cutting him because he was that bad and he never got picked up again. So he will be free, I think, at auctions. And and yeah, I think he's worth taking a shot on for sure. I'm also intrigued. He'll have a full offseason this year with the sort of new pitching development program in San Diego. They added Ruben Niebla, who was with Cleveland and, and has done a lot. Like there were a lot of Cleveland fans and I will, I was one of them who was very concerned that his loss would, would be a, a big hit to the Cleveland pitching factory. If it's going to be, it hasn't happened yet. That's great. I'm very happy to say that. But I, I think he's a nice ad for San Diego still. And I, I, 
I think he can do good things with their pitchers. And Manaya seems like the kind of guy that could benefit from that. And he didn't really get the full benefit of that this year because of timing with everything. So I, I'm I'm intrigued. Okay, you've convinced me. I should pay attention to him. I will. One last thing real quick on Manaya. For two thirds of the season, for four of the six months of the season, that XFIP was under four, which like, again, not the sexiest number to, to set the benchmark at four, but for someone who's going to go as late as him and the fly ball rate took an inexplicable leap in the BABIP, especially in the second half, w- went way up. So it, it, there's just so many indicators to me that like, yeah, he's not that great, but even players that are not that great can still get unlucky and still be better than what they look like. And I, th- that can be something that gets lost. So I don't want to, I don't want to beat the horse here. Uh, what, what's the phrase again? Beat a dead horse. I, it's a super dark phrase more than it needs to be <laughs> with a player like Sean Manaya. But based on what I've, I've seen here, I think he's going to be a target for me in my, in my deep leagues. You're not going to own yeah. him in a 10 or 12 team league. Yeah, that totally makes sense. So let's jump to one last guy. And this is another guy who, I think is borderline for qualifying for this because part of his issue in falling outside the top 200, he and the Raswell player Raider, this guy was 231. Part of it was playing time. He only got 87 games, 361 plate appearances, and that is O'Neill Cruz. I don't think I need to say a ton about him, but I'll say a couple of things. One is he already was a almost top 200 player in just half a season, which is basically all he got. He hit 17 home runs and he stole 11 bases in half a season, a little more than half a season, but close enough in a season where I think almost universally people were disappointed by what they got from him. The strikeout rate was still high. The average was still super low. Like it wasn't, he wasn't the star people thought he would be right out of the bat. If you go look at the Raswell player Raider, you've mentioned this guy already, and I'm going to mention him again. But the guy who on the Raswell player Raider was number 14 this year was Adelise Garcia. Adelise Garcia in 2022 had a 250 average, 27 home runs, 25 stolen bases, and he had 88 runs, 101 RBIs. Now he is in a better lineup than Cruz is, but it's not a particularly great lineup. He did. He was hitting behind Simeon and Seeker, right? So like he had, he had opportunities that, that I don't think Cruz will have, but you're telling me that if Cruz gets a full season of playing time, he can't put up those numbers with shortstop eligibility. Like easy, easily. Like he doesn't, if he doesn't improve, he could put up a 30, 20 season. If he does improve, if he cuts down on that strikeout rate and becomes a more dangerous hitter, the sky's the limit, right? And, and so Cruz is a guy who, I, I'll be honest, I'm going to end up drafting him in probably every league I'm in. Where he's available, I'm going to draft him. Because I think his path to an Adelis Garcia type top 15 season is just do what you did, but don't get sent down. like. Where do you don't see spend his time in ADP? Boy, I don't know, but it's not going to be. I mean, so let's take a look at like at shortstop. Do you think he'll go top one fifty? I think I the steals might push so. him into that uncomfortable territory. Where did Bobby Witt Jr. go this year? Do you remember what Bobby Witt Jr.'s ADP was? I'm going to pull see if I can pull it up. He he kept getting pushed up closer and closer to the season. Obviously, when it became guaranteed, his job was there. So the, the ADP might be. A little misleading, but so I'm going to pull up. He, NFBC he was going ADP pretty early. At, 
Let's look at NFBC ADP. So just the month of March. Yeah. Right? Because I think that's probably a better time frame to look at where what was going. He was going 72nd. So I, I think Cruz probably goes somewhere in that top 100-ish range. Because I think people are going to look at him and like, I'm not I'm not pointing out anything unexpected, unknown. Like he stole a lot of bases and hit a lot of home runs and not a lot of time. Everyone knows that. Everyone can see that. This isn't going to surprise anyone. He is there there is no reason to expect he isn't playing 155 games as the starting shortstop for the Pirates next year. So I think he probably pushes up near there. As I look at shortstops on the player raider this year and think about the shortstops that would go ahead of him. Trey Turner, obviously still going ahead of him. Dansby Swanson probably goes ahead of him. Francisco Lindor should go ahead of him. Marcus Simeon should still go ahead of him. Bo Bichette probably still goes ahead of him. Bobby Witt Jr. I don't, well, although Witt Jr. won't be a shortstop anymore, will he? He only played third base this year. I think. Yeah, I think he's just, I'll, I'll double check that. Yeah. But then you get into like Willie Adamas, Tommy Edmond, Corey Seager. Andres Jimenez, I don't think will. It depends on the league. He played a little bit of shortstop. But I don't think he played enough. Xander, Glaber, like, do I think he goes in that group after that top five? Although, again, Simeon also didn't play enough shortstop this year, I don't think, to qualify. So it's really just Turner, so Swanson. Did. Oh, he did? Yeah, he actually started more games at shortstop than he did at third base. Oh, I didn't know that. 96 to 50. Yeah. Me, huh. me neither. He started the, the year third base, base eligibility is and, huge. and the Royals became totally irrelevant after like three weeks. And so I stopped paying attention <laughs> to where he was playing. I saw his numbers, but not his position. So that's good to know. So, okay. Turner, Swanson, Lindor, Bichette, Witt are the five shortstops. Again, I'm assuming Simeon doesn't qualify anymore, which I could be wrong about. But those I'm five... I'm up right now, but I doubt it. Those are the only five that I think are obviously going before Cruz. Adamus, Edmund, Seeger, Xander. Like, there's some other guys that could. But I don't think it's obvious. And so I do think he ends up going in that group. But, like, I even if he goes in that group, I, I think the... Again, the, the thing that stands out to me is we're not talking about his upside. I'm not saying he has the upside of an Adelis Garcia season with shortstop eligibility. I'm saying he already put up that season in half a season. <laughs> he just has to keep doing what he's been doing. Now, his average is a little bit lower. Fine. Like, he does have to make some improvements there. But even with a 240 average, 235 average, if he goes 30-20, he's going to be plenty valuable. So, yeah, I think if you can get him outside the top 75, he's a no-brainer. I think if you get him outside the top 50, he's still probably a good pick. Yeah, and that's that's obviously talking roto leagues. Semyon, for what it's worth, it's going to depend on your format. Like ESPN, he would have needed 15 starts to have shortstop eligibility. He only had 13, so an ESPN Semyon will just be second base. But obviously on Yahoo, he will have it. I mean, it's all irrelevant. Whatever. I I agree with the premise. I think Cruz is a little bit that's that price is a little rich for my blood, especially if I'm going to have to reach if I really want him, depending on where I'm picking in the round. But the upside is there. And, 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 you know, you brought up like all he needs is an improvement in the strikeout rate and all that. Like you could make the case he already made it. I mean, in September, that strikeout rate was underneath 30%, which it, uh, once again, that's not really a great 
benchmark like oh he's under a 30 percent strike or 30 percent is terrible but for O'Neill Cruz that's huge that he was under 30 percent to close out the season and it coincided with a WRC plus over 140 by the way so there's no question again I, and I agree with you we're not when we mention Adelise Garcia we're not talking upside we're talking like a pretty reasonable outcome if he gets to those 500 plate appearances, which like you said, I think he will. So I'm in, if he's going ahead of Seager and Bogarts, he mentioned those names in potentially a class with him. I'm going to take Seager and Bogarts. Seager maybe coming off one of his best seasons. Bogarts, maybe it depends on where he lands, but I also have no problem taking both. If I think that it's going to help my team and throw one of them at middle infield or whatever it might be. So I'm with you on Cruz, although I am worried the price is going to be a little high. Yeah, that makes sense. I I just think in in this this you made the point about it depending on format. I think it's a really good call out because in I'm really in there when I'm saying that he could jump to that high value. I'm really talking five by five in in Fangraphs like Fangraphs points leagues on Auto New. He had four point eight points per game this year. Adelis Garcia was only at five point oh six or something like that. Like that profile, you think of it as being this like power friendly, and it is a power friendly format, but it is an OBP friendly format, and those guys do not really bring that. If he puts up like a five points per game at shortstop, that's still good, right? That's still starting level shortstop. But here's the list of shortstops who are above five points per game in Fangraphs points this year in 200 plus plate appearances because I needed to set some cutoff. Trey Turner, Carlos Correa, Xander Bogarts, Bo Bichette, Francisco Lindor, Andres Jimenez, Corey Seager, Dansby Swanson, Willie Adamas, Tim Anderson, Marcus Simeon. O'Neill Cruz was next. So that is two, four, six, eight, ten, eleven guys who are over five. And then Cruz at 4.8, Wander Franco at 4.79, Tommy Edmond 4.71, Bobby Witt Jr. 4.71. So in Fangraph's points leagues, and this is this is true for any on base league. It's true. It'll be true for four by four. He actually does have to improve to jump into that kind of tier. His current skill set is more like a solid starting shortstop, like a not even solid, an acceptable starting shortstop and a solid starting middle infielder in an out of new league than it is fantasy star. What he did in five by five is pushing fantasy star already. He just has to do it for a full season. So do keep in mind that that format really makes a difference there. That isn't to say that I don't think Cruz could jump to a, you know, five and a half point per game, top five shortstop type in Fangraphs points leagues. He could, but that actually requires meaningful improvement in other parts of his game. Whereas the leap in five by five doesn't. Yep. No question. And in Roto leagues, the one thing that is interesting about Cruz is, and you brought this up, when we were talking about Grisham, I can't remember if you brought it up about Cruz, is the, is the rules regarding stolen bases, is that going to be a positive thing for Cruz or is that going to maybe level out the playing field in terms of stolen bases a little bit more, which maybe makes his stolen base a little bit less valuable, which makes the risk in terms of the strikeout rate and, and, and banking on him hitting close to 40 home runs a little bit tougher to take that risk because the floor is not as important or useful as it would have been yeah. before. But it's not something that we're going to be able to predict between now and your drafts. So that's just more a gut thing. So now that we've sort of gone through these six names, I want to take a quick look and like, there's some other names that we didn't mention who I think are sort of obvious fits for this, you know, could jump into the top two rounds type value category, but didn't qualify for variety, you know, because we talked about, we, we don't want to talk about rookies and we don't want to talk about injured guys, but like Fernando Tatis Jr. is the obvious example of like, he didn't play, but 
should should return be a top two rounder anyway. Yeah. Right. He's going to return great value. And interestingly, I actually think that while he could return top two round value, I'm guessing his draft value is going to be too high for me. I don't think well, I, I mean, want to take on the risk. He's missed a year and a half, right? I mean, yeah. With with shoulder surgery and steroids, and yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. I'm not taking him in the second round, but I bet he'll go in the second round. Yeah, I think he will. A couple of places, ESPN and CBS have both posted their like first two rounds predictions. I think ESPN's was like the top 25 players. CBS was predicting the first two rounds, and I'm pretty sure Tatis was on both lists. Yeah, I I don't I don't think I'm going there, but he belongs in this discussion. I think. Just gonna. I'm, I'm now. I'm, I pulled up the Rasball Player Raider. The other name I wanted to mention, by the way, in that that sort of injury related category, is your boy Jazz Chisholm Jr. He certainly has first two round talent in that bat if he if he stays healthy and makes some. I think still has to make some adjustments. He he slowed down after that scorching start, but the talent is there. Looking at just the top two hundred now and sort of or outside the top two hundred now. David Bednar, again, it was an injury issue, but I think he could jump to being a top-tier closer for sure. I think you'll probably see some talk about Seiya Suzuki as a guy who could jump that high. I, I don't see it. No. I don't know about how you feel about Seiya. Yeah, we, we chatted about him quite a bit last time. You seem to think that despite the peaks and valleys of this season, that the end result was pretty close to what we should expect. I think if the Cubs lineup improves, I think we could get a, a much more fulfilling season from Suzuki, especially with a full year under his belt. I think those lows won't be quite so low, but top two round, no way. A name that sticks out to me, Chad, I I don't, I mean, top two rounds, especially in this pitching market is maybe a little bit ambitious, but the way that Jesus Lazardo kind of closed out his season and the upside that he used to have, he was the number one pitching prospect in baseball not too long ago. I kind of like him as, as someone on this list who he's, he's down there because of injuries. And even if he wasn't injured, there's a chance the Marlins would have limited his innings anyway, which would have prevented him from entering the top 200. But He's one of those guys who really didn't qualify because of the injury, but seems to have locked. It looked like I, mean, there, I, I can't believe he escaped Tommy John with what was going on. Yeah. Not that I'm a doctor or anything, but he did. He escaped it. And when he finally came back, he was awesome. So he sticks out to me as a name on this list. Luis Severino sticks out to me as well in a, in a similar sure. way. Like this, we, we've seen him be that kind of pitcher before. And now he pitched a semi-normal season this year. He got 100 innings under his belt. He can have a normal offseason. Like, uh, I like that. I think Adley Rutschman becoming the top fantasy catcher is not a crazy prediction. And He's so pretty good. A, yeah. So he's another guy who I think, like, I still don't think, like, personally, I don't think any catcher really warrants first two-round value. God, but, no. like, he could make a run. Who, who was the last one? Was it Maurer? It had to be Maurer after 2012. Uh, I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah, it's eternity ago. So it's I agree with you. I don't hard. think he's ever going to be top two. Yeah. yeah. Just scrolling through the list. Let's see who else pops out as interesting. Wander Franco, for sure. Yeah, Wander Franco. Although, again, I, I've i continued to be sort of down on his fantasy value because I just don't think he will either hit for enough power or steal enough bases to accent what he does really well, which is hit the ball and get on base. And I think... I'll say I've been saying this for it feels like a year and a half with him. Like, I think he's going to be an excellent, excellent baseball player. I just don't think he's going to be an excellent five by five fantasy player. So, yeah, but he should be, you know, again, injury was a real issue for him. We talked a little bit about Montas, but I'm a little, I'm worried about him. I don't know. I don't really see anyone else that sort of stands out to me. So top two rounds, 
again, really ambitious for these two guys, but I think they have the the kind of electric stuff that put it all together in a season like one of them already has and, and they could enter that territory and that's Freddie Peralta and Hunter Green. Both of them, especially Peralta, when he returned, he had that shaky start to the season, ended up spending basically all from June through August on the IL. But when he came back in August, he wasn't going deep in outings, but he was good. And Hunter Green really turned it on down the stretch. He was absolutely dominant with like the strikeout numbers, particularly that you need to have. If you want to go in the first two rounds as a pitcher, you need to post basically everything. I don't think he'll get the wins and maybe that keeps him away, but the strikeouts are obviously there with Hunter Green. Yeah, that's a good call out. Ronzi Contreras, I think, falls into that sort of camp where I think the, the stuff is is special and, and he can make a leap for sure. Other bats, I mean, Isak Paredes, I think, is a very, very good bat. I, I I doubt he makes a huge leap only because the way Tampa uses their bats is impossible to predict and all over the place. And like, I don't know that he'll get enough playing time, but I really like what he's what he's capable of. And I think that's a I think it's about it. I'm not really seeing anyone else who jumps out at me. I guess I, uh, to end, we could throw out two more first basemen. One of them, you're a huge fan of Vinny Pasquantino. Um, yeah, who certainly was projecting that way and ended up missing some time, came back and was hot again. Tristan Cassis, I read that he, no player in MLB history had as many. What was the exact statistic through their first 70 plate appearances? No one had had like more than I think it was five home runs and more than 20 walks. Cassis was the first player in MLB history to that. Wow. Um, so it, uh, particularly in points formats where the walks are worth a little bit more, I could see not uh, new points, but but just point league in general. Cass is kind of entering that territory and both those players obviously have the upside. Huh. Makes sense. Very cool. Well, I think we've gone through a lot of names here. We, we focused on six guys. We've thrown out way more than six on top of that. So hopefully this is useful. I think in terms of, you know, what you should be doing with this information. I think it's, it's, you know, if you roster any of these players taking a minute to think about whether or not they're keepers, like they, there is some upside there. And again, this comes down to like league format and, you know, are you only keeping three? Cause you're only keeping three. Don't keep guys who might make a leap, keep guys who are actually good. If you're keeping 12, grabbing, holding on to some low price guys who can make a leap is valuable. And I would also take the time to look at where these guys might be available for you in trades in your keeper leagues, because these are all guys who, you know, some of them, I mean, Cruz is probably a good example where whoever rosters Cruz is probably like, eh, I, I rostered him for the upside. I'm not giving up on him now. But some of these other guys, a guy like certainly like Grisham, possibly like Lodolo, certainly Manaya, like these are guys who you may be able to keep at a very low cost and acquire at a trade at a very low cost. So poke around, see where they are. Anything else you'd be doing with these guys right now? Add him to watch this. Um, oh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess when I think about it, I'm like, all right, well, what if I have a LeMahieu at like a price that, like, I don't know, to others might be expensive, to me might be like, don't be tempted to. And I know this is a fine line that that you've talked about in the past, Chad, where you're like, if you would still pay it, then like keep the guy because you risk paying more. But if you think you can get a player for much cheaper, just because we mentioned them, I wouldn't necessarily keep them. I would still that's like Shamanaya. If I have him for six bucks, like, okay, that's not going to break the bank, but I'm pretty sure I can get him for a dollar. Even though I like him after listening to this brilliant podcast, I'm just going to go buy him back for a dollar. I'm not going to keep him just because I think he could improve. Yeah, no, that is the right thing to do. Like these are not a lot of these guys. Some of them are not like Cruz, Lodolo, 
maybe Mancini, like some of these guys are not going to go for just a, you know, a buck at the end of drafts. Like that won't be their, their cost necessarily. And so in the off season, pay attention, see if you can figure out what they look like from a, a price standpoint. But yeah, if, if you've got one of these guys, if you've got a $10 Sean Manaya, cut him. If you have a $10 Trent Grisham, cut him because they will be, they will be cheaper next year for sure. So good call out. So with that, we're almost at, we're well, we're over an hour. I say we're almost at an hour. That's not even close. We're, we've been recording for well over an hour. So <laughs> we're going to let you go. Hope you're enjoying this episode. Hope you enjoy everything we do this off season. Again, let us know what you want to hear us cover, what we can do that'd be useful. Hit us up at keep or cut on Twitter or find Pete at PP baseball. Find me at Chad Young. Enjoy the playoffs and we'll be back with you in two weeks. Bye.